Space, the final frontier. These are the voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its continuing mission to explore strange new worlds. Boldly go where no one has gone before. Engage. Engage. Kurt Enterprise, Enterprise. This is Captain Jean-Luc Picard. Captain Catherine Janeway. Captain Sisko. This is Captain Jonathan Archer. Red alert. Photon torpedoes. Fire. The official Star Trek podcast. Engage. Engage. Make it so. With your host, Jordan Hoffman. That, sir, is illogical. And to make sure history never forgets. This is Engage. Hailing frequencies open, sir. And we are back. Hello, everyone. Hello. Welcome to the newest episode of Engage. Engage, the official Star Trek podcast. I'm very happy to be speaking to you. I'm very happy to be inside your ears as you're in the car, as um, you're listening to the show. Maybe on all alone as you take a jog. Maybe you're a father and son like the Tritter family. Hey, Tritters out there in California listening. Or maybe my uh, friend that I met down uh, at the Las Vegas convention, my friend from down in Brazil, or my friend that I met over in Scotland, or uh, that young kid with the long hair. I forgot his name, but he seemed very nice with his mom. Um, anyhow, it's happy to be uh, happy to be with you because, I don't know, you all seem very nice. So listen, we got the new episode coming up, and I don't want to talk too much because uh, what we did was we went out to Las Vegas, as you know, for the annual Star Trek convention. So much fun. You got to go next year. And... Um, Recorded a lot of panels. Man, was I hosting panels day and night. Do you know that um, I talked so much at the Star Trek convention that I, I didn't lose my voice, but my voice got very sore, and I went back to the hotel. <laughs> I was staying at a very fancy hotel, um, and I ordered a pot of tea. I said, a large pot of tea, please. And do you know how much a large pot of tea costs in an expensive Las Vegas hotel? I ask you, do you know how much? Take a guess. Email me. Put it on my wall. Facebook.com slash engage the official Star Trek podcast or tweet at me at, at Jay Hoffman. And next week I'll tell you how many uh, how, how much it costs for a pot of tea. Ridiculous. All right, anyway, listen. So we got a great show this week. Science heavy show. Science heavy show. Bloop, bloop, bloop. Alert, alert. Science heavy show. Star Trek has always put the sigh in sci-fi. And I don't just mean sigh like, oh. Will Riker's eyes are so dreamy. Not that kind of sigh, although there is that too. I mean, sigh is in science. Hard science. Diamond hard science. And uh, this week, uh, we are going to play two, two of my encounters with some of the science folks that were there. Uh, and there were more than two. Um, there were five of them. Um, the, the, uh, I did not record a session with uh, three geniuses who are associated with Caltech, who go by the name of Philip jesse and robert robert hurt jesse christensen i think and philip hopkins yes philip hopkins is a theoretical physicist theoretical astrophysicist and i spoke to him about uh string theory which was cool and uh, robert hurt is sort of, uh, sort of he takes hard data and visualizes it he's sort of a left brain right brain kind of guy and um Maybe I did record this conversation. I don't know. Uh, and Jesse Christensen is a, a, a she's a genius, and she knows all about exoplanets, and she's wonderful. But that's not this week. This week we got two um, two great men. Um, Jesse represented the ladies, but she's not on this week. But uh, two great fellas. One by the name of Phil Plate. Everybody knows Phil Plate. 
We know him as the bad astronomer, bad to the bone. And Phil Plate is a he's been writing about science, has written a number of books, including um Death from the Skies, the way these are the ways the world will end. And uh, Bad Astronomy is sort of the book that uh, he made his name with in 2002. And um, he's been writing online uh, forever. He's had his own blog. And I think his stuff now lives at sci-fi.com, S-Y-F-Y.com. Uh, but, you know, his work is um, is all over the place. I think he wrote for Slate for a while, Discovery Magazine, etc., etc. So uh, we yapped to him about the sci and sci-fi. And then we also yapped to Ethan Siegel, who was an expert in, and, and Phil played mostly an astronomer, uh, Ethan Siegel uh, is an expert in astrophysics and particularly uh, Big Bang, Big Bang Theory, not the television show, the actual theory. And um, uh, he has a blog called Starts With a Bang, and that's his Twitter handle, is Starts With a Bang. Um, Phil Plate's Twitter handle is at Bad Astronomer. But dig this, Ethan Siegel, who's wonderful, by the way, he's got a, if I may, uh, a uh, a crazy mustache, like a wild handlebar mustache and a long beard, and he tends to wear a kilt, which is something else. Um, he uh, has a book that's coming out in a few weeks slash months, uh, uh, late October, I think. But so plenty of time for the holidays, and but not right now. And the book is called uh, Treknology, and it is not the first book about the topic of you know the technology you see in Star Trek and and its interrelation with real life but it's the best one uh, because it's very very well produced it's got a lot of great photos and pictures and graphs and whatnot and it's very up to date it's written now he wrote it you know he, he just finished it so it's got all about um, you know the most up-to-date technology and what's happening and this this goes from the very big stuff like you know uh the concept of the transporter and warp drive which is definitely still more fiction of science fiction to other aspects like you know uh the communicator and the cell phone and how how those two things are interrelated and the pad and the ipad and whatnot and things like the hypospray and synthahol we talk about this so you'll 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 hear all about it but um What's really cool about um, about his book is just uh, just the way it's let it, laid out. So it's really cool. Well, well, so you know, I don't want to shill too much for it, but if you're a Trek fan looking for a gift for somebody, that's a good one to think about later this year. So I think with that, I have prepped you enough. I think we'll hear Phil Plate first, and then Ethan Siegel second. Um, but you know, they're both great. You want to hang out for both of them. Um, but you know, talking tech, talking sci sci in your sci fi. I must remind you, of course, that if you are the type of cat who's listening to this show, you are somebody who's got a lot of cool stuff on your computer, and you may find yourself in need of some extra disk space, some extra RAM, and you might need a solid straight state drive from our friends at Western Digital, who, of course, have been the sponsor of the show now for quite some time, and with any luck, will continue to be the sponsor of the show. And why wouldn't they? Because they're getting direct access to you, the listener of Star Trek Engage, the official Star Trek podcast. And you're the type of person, again, who wants to play video games, who wants to play Star Trek online, who wants to um, have a lot of, you know, you want all 
three seasons of TOS, seven seasons of TNG, DS9, Voyager, four seasons of Enterprise, one and one half seasons of animated series, and 13 feature films. You want to have them with you at all times. You need space to hold all that stuff. So go to WD.com slash engage. WD.com slash engage, and you can check out some of the, uh, the, the drives there, the blue and the black ones, and you'll get 20% off when you use the, um, the code WDENGAGE, WOODENGAGE, WD.com slash engage, passcode WDENGAGE for the, the coupon code, 20% off. That's no jive, 20% off. Okay, so that's the deal with that. So coming right up, we're going to hear from our friends Paul, uh, Phil Plate and Ethan Siegel, and then we'll be back again next week with more surprises. So stay tuned. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Engage, the official Star Trek podcast. Energize. We are recording. Great. This is not just a fireside chat here at the CBS All Access stage. We are now recording an episode of Engage, the official Star Trek podcast. I am your host, Jordan Hoffman, and today we have a very special guest. Um, we're uh, a man who comes to us direct from the stars. Let's get a nice big round of applause for Phil Plate, also known as the Bad Astronomer. Doesn't look that bad to me. Looks like a pretty decent astronomer, as far as I, I'm concerned. I didn't mean to like come through the curtain when you announced me. I was just coming through <laughs> to like come up here, but now it's like, yes, I'll make an entrance. <laughs> well done. Well, please grab a seat. <laughs> sure. And welcome to the cozy uh, CBS All Access stage, where you can watch people Thank decide you. whether to get the chicken sandwich or to go with the um, with something more healthy. I don't know. Well, um, I do have a Spock emergency. If there's any sort of Spock 911 available, um, there is. You know the the lights going. Yeah. <laughs> just just to, to create a visual, there is a fellow that's been around here all week who has the. I'm going to just come out and say it: the worst piece of ever licensed Star Trek paraphernalia from back in the early '80s. I cannot disagree more. It it's was the most awesomest. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's Nick, right? Yeah, we had breakfast uh, together with some friends this morning. It, it is a helmet. It's awesome. <laughs> I think it, 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 it derives from the Wrath of Khan um, uh, security outfit, right? It kind of looks like it, though, oh, right? Oh, no. Those Red helmets. Circuses. Into the microphone, please, yeah. sir. Okay, here Nick we go. the cosplayer. Now, by the way, he made it. This isn't... License. Right. He put he, this together. He found the old one and remade it. It's just what looks like a, a helmet, like a space balls helmet with a. <laughs> <laughs> this is um, the worst licensing that Star Trek probably ever did. The company just made this helmet and they got the license, so they slapped Star Trek all over it and called it good and added antennas. It has an antenna, it has a, a siren, and it just says Spock on it for no reason. Yeah, and I, you got to realize, I am a fan of a certain age, and I remember. The ads for this in, I don't know, magazines or TV Guide or something. But I remember it's like a little kid, you know, smiling like he's having the best time of his life wearing what's basically a riot helmet. Uh, wow. You know, and during the Vietnam era, that was a 
great idea to license that. But what's weird is that you could be like, I've watched every episode. I don't remember anything like that. What did I miss? So, well, I mean, you, you, you led and right. That's it for our time, everybody. Thanks for coming. <laughs> you led right to it, though. You are, of course, a highly regarded scientist and writer um, and, and figure on all platforms. But before, yes. <laughs> before any of this, you were a Star Trek fan. So tell me here at Star Trek Las Vegas 2017, if you remember your first encounter with the world of Trek and the impression it made on you. Uh, the first? Um, golly, no. Um, because that was, you know, before we could write things down on paper. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes, uh, the earliest memories I guess I have were, were from when I was a little kid uh, and my brothers and my sister watched Star Trek. I don't remember if my parents did. I know later on they did. I just don't remember back in, you know, the late 1960s uh, if they were into it. But I remember us watching it all on the TV. And uh, I guess it was on NBC. But I, those memories are really vague. Yeah. What I do remember is watching it in endless syndication on, uh, on like, anybody here from Washington, D.C.? Channel 20, I think it was, replayed it constantly. Uh, uh, there is somebody here from, from, from Washington? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. You remember Captain 20? Yeah, he's nodding her head. Awesome. Oh, yeah. Creature feature on Saturday nights. Uh, and uh, they would play Star Trek all the time. And I, I was not into Trek as much as other stuff, because by the time I was 10, 11, 12, that age, other things were starting to come along. Um, and uh, I was a huge Space 1999 fan. Oh, oh my God. Yeah. Um, thank you, people who are turning into dust like I am. Um, uh, I had the biggest crush on Catherine Schell, wow. who played the metamorph, could change into any kind of animal. And uh, I mean, that was like, that was it. I still love the eagles from that show, the, the spaceships. And then over time, and, and it, I just watched every black and white giant insect movie, alien invasion, whatever. And, and then as my tastes matured, um, <laughs> but I, I started watching Star Trek more and I remember um, watching uh, the motion picture yeah. and enjoying it um, because, yeah. because, I mean, how are you gonna, you're not gonna get more of your money's worth out of a movie. I, I you pay four bucks and the movie's 17 years <laughs> long. So I didn't get the memo until later that people didn't like that movie. Yeah. I thought it was great when I first saw it. I thought it was so. slow, but I, you know, yeah. there were elements in it. And then Wrath of Khan came out when, right after I graduated high school, like that week. Oh, wow. And that was the summer of 82. And I, 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 I remember thinking, this summer is kind of awesome for science fiction. Yeah. And then... Um, well, it was, it was Blade Runner. Oh, it, it was Blade Runner. It was The Thing. It was E.T. Poltergeist, I think. Yes, um, and, and, and Wrath of Khan. Incredible. It was just an incredible summer for movies. Yeah. And I had that summer to go to movies. Yeah. I, was, you know, I just graduated high school, so that kind of cemented it, and uh, uh, especially with Wrath of Khan, yeah. kind of blew us all away. And I've, I've been a Trek fan ever since. And, and, and when you were uh, beginning your career in, in science, in real science, uh, was science fiction <laughs> something that you were, um, do you think it helped? Because a lot of people say, yeah, you know, I, you talk to a lot of guys at NASA. I started at NASA because I fell in love with Mr. Spock. To what degree did sci-fi propel your trajectory in your career? If the answer is none, then the answer is none. But... Uh, I don't want you to lie here on yeah, the CBS All Access. I've hated page. all science fiction, and I've gone into science to prove it all wrong. Um, no, it, it's you know, I, 
I was inspired to become a scientist when I was like five or six years old, and my parents bought a uh, piece of crap, I'll say it that way, telescope, uh, department store telescope, and set it up in the driveway to look at Saturn. And I, I don't remember the year, I don't remember the timing, but um, what, roughly once a year, Earth and Saturn are at their closest points together. So probably they saw something in the newspaper. They were science-minded. Um, but they bought that, and I saw Saturn through that telescope, and it was like, yeah, that's, I'm done. That's, this is what I'm doing. Wow. Um, and, and at that point, I loved dinosaurs. I loved astronomy, and I, this was during Apollo, if, if I can give away my age. And uh, I was also watching a lot of science fiction at the time. So basically, they've been intertwined. I don't think there's any disentangling the science from the science fiction. They have both... Uh, uh, my love of science has helped my appreciation of science fiction and seeing the daring do and the aliens and the giant insects. Yeah. I mean, them, come on. Them, them is phenomenal. Are you kidding what me? What a movie. I love that you know, you know, some, some I've spoken to some scientists who kind of get twitchy when they talk about bad science in sci-fi. Yeah, uh, sure. And it sounds to me like that doesn't bug you too much. <laughs> You have not read my stuff from 15, 20 years ago. Uh, I see some of you have. Um, not to put, uh, this is, is this a G-rated podcast? This is whatever rate you, okay. we're, we're in, you know. Um, yeah, up until rel relatively recently, given my age, but relatively recently, I was kind of a dick about the science and science fiction. Um, you may use the word ass if you prefer. Uh, something but, from uh, the lower regions yeah, is what you were. Somewhere yeah. in that mid, you know, above the legs, mm. below the belly button region <laughs> of the human body. Um, it's, it's so easy to become uh, 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 superior, mm. you know, and there's always othering, you know. Oh, you like the third season of Star Trek? Oh, how sad for you. When of, clearly the second season is, a, you know, it's so easy even in a tribe to other people. Sure. And when you're a scientist and, and you start talking about these movies, it's like, oh, that's so fakey. You know, when you're a kid, oh, that asteroid's just made of styrofoam. Uh, and then the web came along and allowed you to be an ass to everybody. <laughs> Hooray! Uh, and so for a while I was like really ripping apart movies um, uh, Arm Armageddon. You've, you've recanted this? You, you turned your back on your prior uh, self and wish to lead a more inclusive and allowing and, or you... Oh, no, 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 I'm just not a dick about it anymore. Um, uh, you just keep heaven, it to yourself. Oh, good heavens. Um, no, there are terrible movies that come out all the time and somebody has to say, eh, mm, that's not, no, that's not how that works. Yeah. And actually, nobody has to say that, but... Right. But Star Trek has always gone out of its way, even from the beginning. I'm not saying it all makes sense, believe me. But uh, Roddenberry, from day one, hired... Um, he, he had the script sort of vetted by the Rand Corporation. And there oh, was an, right. another, yeah. cor another group of fact-checkers called... And it's funny, it was called the Kelly DeForest Group. I'm not making this up, because there's DeForest Kelly, and then there was the Kelly DeForest Group. And they would look at the scripts, and they would say... You know, there is a, a soupçon of truth to how you're describing warp drive, right. or we can't disprove it, and he would say, oh, good enough for those guys, leave yeah. it in, you know? Certainly, would you say that Star Trek does, by and large, hold itself to a slightly different standard than, I don't know, Doctor Strange, Iron Man, things of this nature? Sure. <laughs> 
Um, I mean, if you're going to throw out the Iron Man level of, of scientific integrity, absolutely. Um, we're going to ignore inertia, okay? Uh, uh, we're going to slam Robert Downey Jr. into the desert at 200 miles an hour, and he's going to shake the sand off of him. Absolutely. There's my seal of approval. Um, you know, that's not what science fiction is necessarily about. Right. Okay, and, and that always sounds like a cop-out, but it's true. It's about the story, and that took me a long time to figure out. It's not about getting the science right, because if you get the science right, what you wind up with is an incredibly dull story. <laughs> it's like, yeah. um, yes, we're going we're gonna to show these astronauts going to Mars, and it's going to take six months. It's like, really? You're going to sell commercials for that? That's not going to work. <laughs> um, so you can sacrifice some science to make the story work, and I'm, 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 it, it took a long time to become okay with that, but yeah. I am okay with that. And... Uh, if, if there's an attempt to get the science right, awesome. Yeah. If there's an attempt to retcon the science, yeah. like, you know, we're going to generate a warp bubble and that's going to distort space and so we're not really going faster than light locally, although, you know, outside of this bubble we are. It's like, well, at least they tried. Right, it still right, doesn't right. work because <laughs> traveling faster than light is like time travel and it's complicated. Right. Um, but... I'm okay with that, and in fact, I'm, I'm sorry, um, as I've actually become more involved with um, consulting with some television shows and movies, I find, uh, again, it's like, well, we could get the science right, but there's this pivotal moment in the story that depends on, you know, the science not being right. Yeah. And it's like, all right, the science is secondary, get rid of it and make the story work. Well, I can think of a very good example of a, of a movie that came out, which I really love, that is just like a, some of it is like, you know, vetted, and some of it is like, that's just hogwash, and it was the movie Interstellar, and um, the stuff about the black holes, uh, the director, Christopher Nolan, had consulted with a very famous physicist whose name is... Kip O'Neill. Kip O'Neill. And Kip O'Neill came Kip in... Kip O'Neill, no. Kip, Kip Thorne. Thorne. Kip O'Neill. Do you think yeah, Kip O'Neill? Yeah, I know, Kip Thorne. I had Kip right, and then I... Yeah. Who's Kip O'Neill? You're thinking Tip O'Neill. Tip O'Neill. Congress. Yeah, Tip O'Neill. And, and Newt Gingrich, actually. <laughs> right. That's right. Uh, yeah. Oh, my God. Nancy Kip Pelosi worked as a cinematographer yeah, Kip, Kip, on it. No, Kip, yeah. yeah. Kip Thorne is a, is a world-renowned astrophysicist, black hole theorist, uh, and w w easily one of the very best astrophysicists in the black hole field. Right. So for the parts in the movie in Interstellar that deal with black holes, Kip came in. Kip, like he's my buddy. Kip came in and made it all make sense. But the problem is there's the rest of the movie that Kip had nothing to yes, do right. with. Like, you know, getting the, the grand unifying theory of everything into somebody's wristwatch through the power of love or something like that, yeah. which didn't quite work out. I still think the movie is great, but it's an interesting example really? of, you don't let's, like that one at all. Let's talk about that. <laughs> um, no. And it's not the power of love. Love yeah. is the fourth dimension. Did yeah. you not listen to Anne Hathaway? Fifth. I thought it was fifth dimension. Or the fifth dimension. Whatever. Yeah. The, the, it didn't make any sense. Um, the fifth dimension. Yeah. No, um, I think, here's, I, I have to say this because okay. I, my other life other than being on this stage and talking about Star Trek is as a film critic. And I, uh, Interstellar is the one movie review I've written that I deeply regret because when I first reviewed it, <laughs> I didn't like it. And I, I, okay. I was meh on it. I gave it a meh. If it was a grade, it would have been a B minus or so. And then I watched it a second time, knowing, all right, all right, all right, love changes the wristwatch, just deal with it. And if you accept that minor flaw, the movie really works. I think it's really, really great. Uh, but 
Doesn't work for you. Have you seen it a second time? Let the record show, for those who are listening to the podcast audio only, that Dr. Plate made a face of disbelief when he said that. <laughs> it's um, as if he ate an entire bowl of lemons right before uh, my eyes. Uh, <laughs> uh, no, it's... it's um, uh, it's, it's complicated. I didn't like the storytelling in that movie. Yeah. Um, uh, a lot of it didn't make sense. A lot of plot lines were dropped. And uh, in discussion with people after, uh, I, I realized that there were some points I missed in the movie and some other things. But, you know, they're walking on frozen clouds at one point at the end of the movie. And I was like, wait, what? what? Um, and in this movie, it's funny. I didn't like the story of the storytelling. And you did, and that's, that's fine. Yeah. I mean, that's a you know, subjective thing. Um, I wrote a review of the movie kind of taking apart the science, and there's a tremendous amount of, of just really awful science in it. And I had to pick something to write about as sort of an anchor. It's like, you know, I could talk about, you know, why are they launching a spaceship right next to their NASA conference room? And, and, and there, there's this whole big deal about why they have to launch this huge rocket off the Earth. But then they launch this little tiny shuttle from a, from a planet that has one and a half times the gravity of the Earth. And it's like, no, you need a much larger rocket to get off that than you do from the Earth. It's, it's okay, okay. But I decided to pick on the black hole in this movie. And I wrote and talked about how the time dilation was cool that they talked about it, but it doesn't work the way they did in the movie. And I was really surprised that Kip Thorne would allow this or, you know, and it turns out... Well, they cut him a big check, so yeah, I'm well, sure that... No, it turns out um, that... After writing this sort of scathing review and saying, you know, I didn't, not, it's not that I didn't like the movie because of the science mistakes, I just didn't like the movie. I had a bunch of people attacking me for saying, you didn't like the movie because of the science. And it's like, no, I said that right there. Um, so I get an email like a couple of days later from Kip Thorne. <laughs> oh, shit. And uh, he basically said, in the movie, the black hole is rotating. And black holes can do this, they can spin. And if they spin, they distort the space around them in a different way. And as soon as he said that, I was like, oh God, how did I miss this? It's not clear from the movie that that's what's happening. But as soon as you do that, it changes how it distorts time. I see. Yeah. And so basically, as you get close to the black hole, time slows down very rapidly. So to have a planet close enough to the black hole that one hour is seven years or whatever that was, yeah. um, if, that black, if that planet literally moved like a mile closer to the black hole, the time change would be hugely different. Oh, but see. if it's rotating, it turns out that's a much lower slope. Right. And I totally screwed that up and I had to write a, a complete, I'm sorry, I, <laughs> I messed this part up. I'll ignore the 5,000 other things that bugged me about this movie, but apologize for this. Um, Kip was awesome about it. Yeah. Uh, it was great, but it was just, you know. Ha have there been some uh, films that you can think of, or books for that matter, that are, you know, uh, popular that it all kind of checks out? Is no. Not um, 2001 A Space Odyssey? No, is actually, that one you know, that... you ask scientists and astronomers what are the best scientifically accurate movies ever made, and they say 2001 yeah. and Contact. Oh, yeah. And with Contact, um, you just ignore the fact that they're traveling through a wormhole, which we don't know exists, but yeah. they set it up in the movie in a way that it's like, well, you know, it could work this way. We don't really know. Yeah. And there are some theories about how you can travel through a wormhole. And at least in the movie, they did that right. Um, there were still a couple of errors in the movie that are so small that you don't have, eh, come on. I mean, really, you, you, even, even the most pedantic jerk would go, I, I hate to even bring this up. 
But Jodie Foster says this, and she means that. Yeah. Um, and 2001 is the same way. You can yeah. actually, there's so much stuff in 2001. And again, you ignore the fact that there's faster than light travel and that they're basically downloading Dave Bowman and, and all of that. But there are a couple of errors. Really? That are, and it's like, uh, I was watching it and I realized that um, when, when Haywood Floyd, who was the, 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 the head of NASA, the, the NASA guy basically, and he's flying to the space station, or from the station to the moon, I can't remember. Yeah. Um, he's in a shuttle, he's in zero gravity, and it's an amazing zero gravity scene. Yeah, pen Written, floating around. Yeah, there. 1968, it was unbelievable. And as he's eating his food out of the freeze-dried tray, he's got a straw and he, he sips his drink and when he stops, the drink goes back down the straw. Ah. And it's like, oh, and then I, and it's like, yeah, there's no gravity. And I start thinking about it. It's like, but you know, if the, if the drink is in a vacuum, sort of a vacuum pack, he's drawing out the liquid. It's going to actually have negative pressure. So when it, when it, when he's done, yeah. it, it actually will try to expand and draw the liquid back down. So I'll give Stanley Kubrick <laughs> a pass on that one. Um, yeah. but, but you know, it's in that yeah, you have to be watching it and blown up 70 millimeters exactly. to notice the food and the straw there. And, and yeah. look, you know, and, and again, with the interstellar incident, uh, this was more of a reminder. It's like, don't be a dick about this stuff because it's, gonna, it's, it's just like making fun of somebody's spelling, right, on, 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 on the internet. It is a law of nature that you will type something incorrectly into your, into your tweet when you're right. um, <laughs> And so, you know, just don't, don't do that. And it turned now. I've done a little bit of consulting now, and it's a lot of fun. I mean, this sure. is a dream job for a nerd, right? Um, to, to actually be asked to help with the science of a show. And right now, um, CBS, you may have heard of it, yeah. um, is, uh, is airing a show called Salvation. And um, this is an, a show about, and I see by the applause, that it's a huge hit among <laughs> Star Trek fans. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a drama. It's a little bit soap opera-ish. Uh, about uh, an asteroid that's going to hit the Earth in six months, and the government tries to cover it up, but there's a, a tech billionaire um, who basically is going to try to save the Earth. Um, and there's a, they, they called me. I was in early. I looked at every script, sent them notes on every script, went back and forth. Um, and it's just fascinating to see what they take and what they don't. Mm. And it's like, yeah, an asteroid out by Jupiter could never get to the Earth in six months. It would take years to get, to get to Earth. You can't uh, send a probe to it. Uh, there's just all this kind of stuff like that. But you know what? Without that stuff, they don't have the story they right, want. Right. So in, you know, when you look at the equations that are on the whiteboard, most of those are going to have to do with the topic they're discussing. So it's like, we have to figure out the orbital mechanics to do this and this. And if you look those equations up, they're orbital mechanics equations. Maybe not exactly saying what they're trying to do, because that's hard. <laughs> um, but at least gives the idea. And this, the, the rocket designs and all that. So you, you learn very rapidly as a consultant, you know, sort of the things that, you know, forget about it. You know, yeah. it's, it's Hollywood, Jake. Right. You know, forget, <laughs> forget about it. it. So it's like, okay, you're going to talk to a probe that's 400 million miles away instantaneously without having to wait an hour for the light to get there and an hour to get back. Okay. It's just funny to me but how... I like the show. It's fun to watch, so I'm okay. It's funny how sometimes, uh, and this happens on Star Trek, it happens in other films, where there will be a great fealty to one aspect of the science, and they'll really kind of nail it. But then, as you say, they have to cut corners elsewhere. It makes for an interesting, uh, interesting mix. Uh, we have a little bit of time if, if people have questions uh, about, um, about science fiction, about science, about Phil's 
uh, what he had for breakfast today about the forthcoming um, eclipse. If there's oh, anyone yeah. from uh, Kentucky or Oregon or anywhere along that line. Yes, yeah, so it's Oregon, Idaho, Wyoming, and then a bunch of other states, and then South Carolina. Yeah, I'm going to watch it from New <laughs> there York. There may be some country in between those, yeah. I think. <laughs> I, don't, I don't get out of bed for no mere... Uh, just because the moon is hiding behind the sun or yes, whatever. Yeah, other, other ways. Yeah. Okay. Hey, is that story about Christopher Columbus true and the, uh, and the eclipse? Oh, that he was imprisoned and, and just told him I would take the sun from the sky yeah. knowing an eclipse was going to happen yeah. and then he let him go. Um, no. Ah! Um, it, it's, it's also, Mark Twain uh, uh, uses it in a Connecticut Yankee in Kingdom's yes. Court. Yes. But, I, I, you know, I, you got me on the spot here because I can't remember the exact thing, but there was a lunar eclipse. Yeah. And, and that has to do something with the Columbus legend. I, but, you know, off the top of my head, I don't remember. He said something like, you, so if, you kids you, listening at home, you know, look this up on Google. I think it was something like, you have angered the gods and he will make the moon bleed if you do not do X, Y, Z. That could be, yeah. Because he knew an eclipse was coming, so. And if they had just waited like another hour, <laughs> they would have been, yeah, okay, guess what we're going to do to you, buddy. Wasn't, and also a, a big eclipse had something to do with proving Einstein's theories, right? Um, actually, yeah. Uh, uh, Einstein's, one of his big ideas is that uh, when you have a massive object, what we perceive as gravity is actually a warping of space around that object. And just like if you're, if you're driving along a road and the road curves, you curve with it. Anything moving through space that's, that, that is curved will curve along with space. And we perceive that as gravity. So really, um, the moon isn't so much going around the Earth. It's just following the curvature of space going around. Oh. So starlight going past the sun gets bent a little bit. And the closer it is to the sun, the more it gets bent. It's a very difficult measurement unless the sun, star is right next to the sun. And the problem is the sun is a bazillion times brighter than a star. Right. Um, so if they waited for an eclipse, then the sun was blocked. They could use telescopes to look at these stars, wait a little while, a few weeks or whatever, observe the stars again and measure the change that the starlight moved. And it turns out, yeah, the star's positions moved basically according to... Relativity, and, and, not exactly, but close enough. And do you do you know how long after Einstein made this theory that this eclipse showed up to help prove it? Was it? It was not like two uh, weeks later. In it was, fact, yes, because his papers all came out in around 1905. Yeah. I don't know when that specific prediction was made, but he he wrote some huge papers in 1905. It's like they call it the miracle year yeah. uh, for physics. And it was 1919 that that eclipse happened. Wow. So 14 years. So he was sitting on his thumbs for 14 years yeah. going, I know it, I just wait. And they had to go to Hawaii to prove it, which sounds like a great, or one of the islands, yeah, right? We, well, we do this a lot with astronomy meetings. It's like, yes, we have to have this meeting in, you know, uh, Tahiti. Uh, 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 but, Who's going to say no, right? I don't know where it was. It was actually a global effort to try oh, to... I see. There's a whole story behind this, because they would have done it the year earlier, but there was this whole World War I thing going on. Uh, and uh, the, the stories behind it are actually really funny. As you're reading them, it's like, oh, they couldn't move equipment because... It was all in Russia for you know because of the war, and they couldn't bring it back in time. Yeah. And it's really and so you couldn't you couldn't prove relativity because of this. <laughs> it sounds like it could be uh, an yeah, interesting movie, doesn't but it? But that's that's what happens. Okay, so we have time for a question or two. Let's hear Not from anymore. this Sorry about that, everybody. No, no, no. we Again. definitely have time for this guy. Uh, going back to the uh, subject of scientific accuracy in fiction, I was just wondering what was your perspective on uh, how they do it in, in the Expanse, which is otherwise an ex okay. a wonderful show. I'm glad you asked because. When you, when you asked me that, and I said Contact in 2001 were the movies. For TV, it's The Expanse. Oh, okay. um, This is based on a series of books. 
um, called basically the Expanse series, written by a, a couple of guys, Daniel Abraham and Ty Frank, and uh, it's now a TV show on Sci-Fi. Yeah. And let the record show that I'm sticking my chest out because I'm wearing a Sci-Fi shirt. I now write for Sci-Fi.com. Uh, my Bad Astronomy blog is there now, um, and so I'm repping repping the biz. And um, the show's amazing. Uh, the, these stories, they're they're sort of grand space opera, uh, really big scale stories. Um, but it's about the people in it. So it's, in a little bit, it's like Star Trek. You have these huge themes and huge stories, but it's about the people, and those are the best kinds of stories. Uh, and uh, I watched the first few episodes, and I was completely destroyed by them. Wow. Uh, just the way the spaceships work, they have to... Um, you, you can't just aim your spaceship and go, uh, unless you know, you're, you've got the Enterprise. In real life, if you have a big spaceship that uses some sort of drive, like a rocket, you're going someplace, you have to, you have to do the vectors and, and all this. And if you, wanna, if you wanna get someplace in a hurry or slow down in a hurry, you flip your ship, you do a flip and burn. You literally flip your ship around 180 degrees and fire your engines and that decelerates you so that you stop or at least you match velocities with where you wanna go. And this is in like the second scene of the first show. Oh, wow. And there's a, there's a scene later on that I won't go into detail, but uh, they're running, they're, they're, the ship's under thrust, which mimics gravity. Um, they turn their magnetic boots off so that, so that, because they don't need them to run across a skywalk. But then the ship is damaged in battle and the drive shuts off and suddenly they're in zero G and they're, 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 they fly off the catwalk. And then what, what they do to get back down, I was watching this on an airplane and, and I'm like, don't, don't scream out, don't scream out. You're on an airplane. The marshal is going to shoot you. Um, but it was, it, it was gorgeous. So awesome. That show, they, they don't get everything right, yeah. but what they don't get right is not critically important, and what yeah, they you, get right is phenomenal. The Expanse is one of those shows that like, is, a, is becoming bigger and bigger. When it first came out, I had a few hardcore fans, and the word of mouth is good. I confess I have not had a chance to watch it watch yet, it. but I, uh, watch it. it's going to be number one on my list. Do you have a question, sir? Uh, yes. Uh, for those uh, here and listening, uh, do you have any uh, words of encouragement or advice to get more involved in uh, astronomy or science in general? Okay, that's a good question. Um, but first of all, I want to point out that that man uh, earlier today gave me a balloon phaser. So thank you very much for that. <laughs> I have that upstairs. Um, if you want to get more involved in science, there's a lot of ways to do it. Um, you're all sitting here listening to me, so I assume that you have some interest in science. So you're already a leg up above roughly 99.99% of everybody in this country. So good on you. Um, and I, that sounded sarcastic, but I mean it literally. Good on you. Um, but you can actually, there, there are ways to get involved in, in, in real scientific research, I'll, I'll, I'll take that aspect of your, of your question. Um, and we talked about this at the panel this morning that we did on exoplanets, about finding worlds around other stars. There are citizen science projects that you can do. You don't have to have any real training, you don't need a degree, just have to be interested in science. And a lot of these projects are amazing. You can look for the ninth planet. You can map craters on, um, on Mars. There's one, one of the original ones was called Galaxy Zoo, and they branched it out, and it's now called Zooniverse. And it was just basically looking at spiral galaxies and saying, do the spirals open clockwise or counterclockwise? And it turns out that's, that's an interesting thing that most astronomers don't really want to investigate because you have to look at tens of thousands of these. But if you have a thousand people doing it online, they only have to look at 10 each. Uh, and so they, they set this up, and you can just log in and do this. I remember there was a thing uh, back in the late 90s where you can, 
on your big desktop computers yeah. could could do SETI while SETI you were at home. SETI at home. Anybody remember yeah. SETI at home? Yeah. It'd be like, hey, I'm gonna go go get a cup of coffee. I'll let my computer find aliens while I'm away from my desk for a while. Yeah. It was a great crowdsourcing. There project. was also Einstein at home, which was looking for gravitational waves, these these ripples in space time when black holes collide. Now we've found them. Uh, with LIGO, which is a, an, an astronomical observatory, but um, and that, but that was a big deal. That was like one of Einstein's huge predictions that took a hundred years to, oh, wow. to come to come to fruition. But these are the kinds of things you can do at home, including looking for exoplanets, planets orbiting other stars. Um, and there have been people who have done this, just citizen scientists, people out there who said, you know what, I want to look for these things, and they found them. So you could you could find a planet in NASA data. And you can so name it after your pet or something. That's amazing, yeah. We, we're, we're getting short on time, but we have one more question here. This one's fast and easy. I'm a medical doctor, a different area of science, but I wanted to ask somebody in your area, does it bother you when the ships aerodynamically bank in space? When yes. You see that? Yes. Every time now, I see that, I squirm just a little bit. Yeah. I don't know who to blame for this. Um, but it looks cool. Yeah, it does look cool. And it, it's, it's more than it looks cool, it looks right, right? If something goes past you, it whooshes when it goes past you. That's, that's freaking 100 million years of evolution. And, and, and so if you see something in space and it's quiet, it doesn't look right, even if it is right. And, you know, bless Firefly for, for not having sounds in space and, and some movies and stuff. But you know what? I don't mind. And, and if you want, you can try to retcon it. You can try to explain it and say, well, it's from the pilot's point of view. And we're hearing that. It's like, really? And the pilot's hearing... Uh, war music playing in the background. Uh, uh, I don't, you know, you can't, it doesn't work. So you, at some point, you just have to sort of swallow the pill right. and say, this is how things are going to be. Um, but in space, nobody can hear you scream. Yes, at least that, that makes um, a good, uh, a good tagline. Yes, that's true. Uh, so you're, you're here, you're repping sci-fi, which of course, uh, S-Y-F-Y, which is where your blog currently is housed. For those uh, that are listening, do you have some other... Um, science magazines or recent books or something that you recommend uh you know just to give you give your you give your thumbs up to what do you like, think people should subscribe to that they may not already oh you assume i have time to read <laughs> um uh you know there are so many good science blogs out there now and you know what i you know what i'd recommend if you're interested in astronomy i mean i mean look at me i am the the stereotypical middle-aged, balding, bearded, white guy scientist. If I were wearing a lab coat, I couldn't be any more obvious. <laughs> and um, you can go online and find a lot of a lot of scientists who are who are tweeting and on social media. Um, I would I would really recommend you find people. You find um, uh, if you're on Twitter, Facebook, find women to follow. Find people of color to follow. Get these different opinions because I'm I'm reporting the science and so are they. But their take on it might be different than mine, and, and people like me, we've had a voice a long time, and I really feel strongly that uh, rise, you know, and, and it's literally true that a rising tide lifts all boats. Um, and we can talk about equipotentials if you'd like, and gravitometric readings, of, no, but I'm not gonna do that. Um, <laughs> but but if, if, seek those people out, get different points of view, um, because it's easy to read about the stuff you like, yeah. And this, from people you already know, but it, it's not as easy to hear something from somebody else's perspective that might contradict yours or at least give you something different. But it's super important. And let me tell you, if Star Trek is about anything, it's about that. Fantastic. Well, uh, we're, we're now officially out of time, but are you, um, you're around for the rest of the day and tomorrow? And yeah, I'm running around a little bit today, but tomorrow I've got, um, talking about the eclipse at noon? 
That's you, a high noon to look up at the, and, at the and sun. And somewhere in one of these, one of the, the, the Forrest D. Kelly rooms. That is the next anybody, door. Right? Anybody see Patrick Stewart hosting Saturday Night Live? Really? You, okay, because he says, this is Forrest D. Kelly. He's making, and, and uh, every time I see DeForest Kelly, I have to think, say it right, because nobody's going to know what you're talking about. But, uh, but uh, I'll be doing that, and uh, you can find me online everywhere. Great. And your Twitter handle is? Bad Astronomer. Fantastic. Well, thanks again for Phil for dropping by. Really appreciate it. Our next guest uh, will be joining us in just a moment, uh, the extraordinary cosplayer Daryl Phillips, who's going to talk to us about makeup and cosplay. If you want to yap with Phil, um, he's around and a uh, very approachable gentleman. Hi, you must be Daryl. Hey, Daryl, how are you? Great. So we're. Um, All right, folks. All right, folks. Stick around for a few minutes. We'll be bringing Daryl Phillips up on the stage in about well, as soon as we can, actually. The whole thing, okay? Okay. Well, you know what? It's just about time to have your minds blown by one of the great cosplayers of. Star Trek Las Vegas, and uh, all week we've been having cosplayers come up that have different uh, specialities. We've had people who really know about fabrics and textiles, people who know a lot about um, uh, latex, but our next guest, Daryl, is really an aficionado about makeup, so we may learn a few tips about makeup, so please welcome Daryl Phillips to the stage. Hooray for Daryl Phillips. Daryl, come grab a microphone and sit down. You got it. So, Daryl, you and I were talking backstage just a moment ago, and I said, you know, you're one of the great cosplayers of Star Trek Las Vegas, um, but you said that you've been cosplaying your whole life but didn't know that's what it was called. That's right. When I was a kid, we used to go dress up as our favorite characters and go run around the neighborhoods. I suppose if we did that now, we'd get arrested. But, uh... <laughs> You know, it was, it was just all part of the fun. Absolutely. So let's take a look at some of the uh, images we've got here. Oh, yeah. There we go. Yeah, this was... is uh, some serious Borg action. Oh, absolutely. Now... <laughs> Tell us a little bit about uh, what went into creating this, because uh, you are, do not have access to huge budgets. Oh, no. You do not have access to an entire studio's uh, chamber of secrets. You have homemade goods. Uh, tell oh, us yeah. how somebody on their own, with a little ingenuity and pluck, can, can wind up making something like this. Well, I'd, I'd like to think that I'm the frugal makeup artist because it's not so much how much money you spend, but what you spend it on. And uh, so with this particular gentleman, uh, it was his first adventure as a Borg. And um, everything that we built for him was made out of latex. And if you were here on, on Friday, you got to uh, meet with Michael Ruff. He's an associate of mine, and um, uh, we worked together on this particular project. And so 
They took casts and made uh, positives so he could sculpt all of this in clay. And uh, my particular task was once everything was all done, we met and I got to put him together. And uh, this was a, an interesting experience. We had to put a bald cap on him. And uh, it was really neat because uh, I got very close to him with a pair of scissors. And uh, he uh, gave me a look like, are you sure you really know what you're doing? And uh, so by the time we were done, uh, he was glued from the top of his head down to the base of his neck and encased in, in uh, rubber and uh, trying to get him from the room down to here uh -oh. <laughs> was a real trick because not only was it difficult to walk in, but everybody wanted to take a picture. <laughs> yeah. so. Well, that's a good sign. That means you're doing something right. Oh, yeah. We, we'd like to think that it was good. But it's, it's been just tremendous. What have we got going on in this photo here? Uh, this was this, uh, an opportunity to make the Borg Queen. And uh, she had a uh, latex cap on the back of her head. And if you could see the back of her head, there's that big assembly with all the tubes coming out. And underneath that cap was a series of green lights that would blink off and on underneath her skin. And then after we applied that, we had a mask that was made out of gelatin and we applied that to her face. And I guess it took us about two hours, two and a half hours that's to get a, her into it. That's pretty significant. But uh, this was a, a fun year because uh, we took first. This was your first prize. First, yes. there, there's, yeah, a, there's a little, little, this is after we've started putting the, get the a gelatin bit. on her face. And then we've got from the, was this is here in the Rio? Yeah, this, yeah. Is, this yeah. was last year? Um, Maybe two years Frankie, ago. Frankie, was it two years ago? Okay. Yeah, two years ago. This is the clan from uh, Nibiru, I believe, is the name of the planet from Star Trek Into Darkness. And uh, you, the whole gang is here. And at what point do you say the glyphs on the page and on their chest have to be exactly like in the film and versus when you can get creative? Oh, it took a lot of research. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we just... We, we, just winged it, actually. Yeah. It, what was the fun part was getting them completely whited out. You know, and I think Tony is the one in front in the loincloth, and uh, you know, we were painting his legs and painting his feet, and after we were all done, we went back into the room, and there were these white footprints where the paint had leaked through his toes to the carpet. Oui. And uh, I'm sure Rio loved us for that. <laughs> but, uh, but it was wonderful because they got to descend on Carl Urban. Oh, really? Awesome. And uh, there was one year, was that the same year that they brought the baby to him? And he put his hands up and shook his head and uh, said it wasn't his. So, <laughs> so here's anyway. a classic, a Tellarite. Which, to be frank, in the original series, the Tellarite, Gav, the first Tellarite we meet, is not exactly Star Trek's finest hour no, in believable it, makeup. It, it really isn't, because... Um, you can see that it's a dude with a mask is, on. Is, <laughs> you have to kind of stand back like that to look out of the eye holes. 
But uh, this particular individual wanted the classic Tellarite. Yeah. And I, I showed him pictures of the ones from Enterprise, and he says, no, 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 I want the other ones. Warts so, and all. Warts and all. <laughs> so uh, what was unique about this particular makeup is that he didn't want any glue. He didn't want to have to spend a ton of time applying it. So we had to make a face piece that he could just put on. Ah. And uh, so what we did is the face piece is made out of polyfoam, and it was pre-painted. The mustache and the eyebrows were hand-punched in and curled, so they were all ready to go. So what he did, he'd put the face mask on first, then the beard, and then we had a wig that would go over and hold the top of the head in place. And his hands were gloves that went up about to uh, his mid-arm. And uh, oh, so those are gloves. That's yeah. not. That's not. Um, that's not. It's uh, it's not a foam prosthetic. Oh wow! Because we're talking about a guy that does multiple costumes when he's here. Yeah. In fact, he's wandering around with a Borg arm and Klingon <laughs> eye. And uh, uh, oh yes, I saw him earlier yeah, today. <laughs> yeah, um, he's the same one that did the uh, Telosian last year. Oh wow! So, how many years have you been coming to Star Trek Las Vegas? Well, my first was 2012, I think. Okay. This is my fifth, fifth uh, uh, that's opportunity. That's official. Once, once you make yeah. it past four, it's, it's, it's more than high school. So, five well, years. Ever since William Shatner told me that I should get a life, <laughs> uh, you know, I didn't know that these things existed, really. Yeah. And uh, so, Michael... Uh, it, goaded me into coming and helping him with, with uh, some of these projects. Yeah. And it, it is uh, tremendously exciting and lots of fun, and you meet so many wonderful people. Yeah. And, and the cosplay uh, community is very tight and, and oh, yeah. helpful of one another. If there's a, uh, if there's a, a sewing emergency, you're always oh, there yeah. for each other or something, something fall, not that any of your work would fall apart, but if somebody's oh, work falls no, apart, no, there no. to help out and... Uh, you know, it's, it's always a lot of fun. What, what, um, what has been the, the piece that you're most proud of so far? Is it? Oh, gosh. Look at this guy. Yeah, that uh, was a lot of fun because it was done so quickly. Really? And I have to tell you a funny story about this guy because this is what he wanted. And I guess it was two years ago we did it the first time. And... Um, we had to put the contact lenses in, and he'd never worn them. Oh. And he wouldn't hold still. And it took me, his father, and that tiny gentleman in the front row. <laughs> we pinned him to a wall. Oh, my God. And had to open his eyes and put these contact lenses on. Uh, and, terrifying. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was great. Yeah, it was great. Oh, man. But I've, I've enjoyed this one. This was a lot of fun to get done. And uh, there's the Telosian. There's the Telosian, yeah. Fabulous. And again, this was just a creation in which he could just put it on his head and be done. Yeah. There you go. Okay. Um, if there's any uh, questions for Daryl, if you're a cosplayer yourself looking for tips, this is a great opportunity to come to the microphone. I see some Endorians in the back. Maybe they've got some questions. Um, if not, uh, that's okay, too. 
Um, what are you uh, thinking about for next year? What about for yourself? Well, you're always putting the makeup on other guys. What about you? That's the problem. Yeah, you know, if I tell you, then you're just going to have to hold me to it. But yeah. I can't think of what the name of the creature is. But in the original series, in the uh, the Savage Curtain. Yeah, yeah. I believe they're called the. Um, the, the rock monster, I yeah. believe they're called the, um, oh, that's a, that's a, Yarneth is his name, yeah. and he's called, where's John Van Sitters, is he here, it, who can Google Yarneth from the Savage Curtain, the rock monster, it's called the, it starts with an M, but you want to be that guy. Yeah, I'm going to. Melkotian? No, Melkotian is something else. Yeah, we're going to do him. That's going to be impossible. No, it's not. Because it's the whole body. Yes. Smoke and all. He's going to have <laughs> smoke and all. You're going to do this so, next year? Yes. Wow. That would so, be amazing. Who's got their a, Google up? What is it called? Now, you're not going to be able to wear clothes under that. You're going to have to be naked because of where you're going to... It's just going to have to be you in the rock suit, right? Well, I guarantee I won't be wearing this. But, <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's going to be uh, a full-body uh, costume and... Uh, Probably less makeup than costume, per se. Right, 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 but right. But it will take time to get in and get out of. Wow. What I love about that is that it's a great and amazing look, and it's going to wow everybody, but it is from one of the worst episodes of Star oh, Trek yeah. of all. Yeah. I'm just hoping Abraham Lincoln shows up next yes. year. Yes, oh, so. sometimes isn't Abraham Lincoln here. Yeah. I'm Abraham Lincoln. It's dynamite. Cool. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. Um, well, you know, if there aren't any other questions out there, we can say how about a big round of applause then for Daryl Philbus for all the great work he does. Thank you. And it's great fun taking photos every year of all the people that he's worked with. And stay, buy your tickets now for next year because it sounds like a doozy. Yep. <laughs> okay, Daryl, thanks very much. Thank and you. stick around. We're going to have another photo op with some cosplayers in just about 10 minutes. Network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. This is Engage, Engage. the official Star Trek podcast. Energize. Well, everybody, uh, those of you that are lingering in the back getting a coffee, you may want to grab a seat. Uh, we have what is actually um, a panel that I've been looking forward to a great deal. Um, and just so you know, we are now recording yet another episode of Engage, the official Star Trek podcast. So if you cheer really loudly during this panel, you may hear yourself on the podcast. You can be driving in your car three weeks from now and say, that's me. Uh, our next guest is a, um, is, a prof is a PhD. I'm sure he's a PhD. Oh, I'm so bad at research. My God, our next, <laughs> our next is a is a is a is a genuine astrophysicist, theoretical astrophysicist. And if he isn't a PhD, he's going to correct me. But I'm sure he is. You don't get to write books like Treknology without having the bona fides. And uh, his new book, which is coming out uh, in just uh, a few weeks, is really one of the most fantastic uh, books I've seen 
that involve science and Star Trek. Now, there have been some books like this written before, but the thing is, science keeps changing, technology keeps changing, and our culture keeps changing. And it is remarkable to look at this book and where we are in the world and see to connect the dots between reality and science fiction. So without any further ado, let's bring out Ethan Siegel and uh, a big round of applause from the assembled hordes that are here. And Ethan, you can come on out and say hello. hello. <laughs> How are you? And you've got a galleys of the book. You are a PhD. Of course you are. You know, I, I had a momentary uh, gap. So you've got, a, um, you've got a microphone back there. You're sitting on it, actually. Beautiful. <laughs> and um, Hello, everybody. <laughs> and we are recording this for Engage, the official Star Trek podcast, right now. Fantastic. So I didn't know you got to be in the headset for not just the, this throng of people here, but also for uh, being recorded in perpetuity. Are you ready to handle that? Let's go for it, everybody. <laughs> make it so. <laughs> Did you make those ears yourself? No, I got these ears from Aradani Studios, which for my money is the, uh, they're the best ear maker in the whole world. <laughs> I mean, we got to talk a little bit about, about your getup here. You are wearing a kilt. There are Delta Shields, Moons, and someone, is that, who is that? Renee Magritte smoking a pipe on the side? What is that? That is Edwin Hubble smoking a pipe oh. on the side. Okay. Um, this is a space kilt that I had an artist uh, named Susanna Maestas. Uh, I commissioned her to create a space kilt for me. And uh, she said, well, can you, can you send me like some space things that like, like maybe some pictures and some people? And so I sent her some people. And on one pocket, she painted Edwin Hubble, who discovered that the universe is expanding with pipe smoke that turns into a galaxy. And on the other side, she painted Cecilia Payne, who discovered what the stars are made out of, hydrogen and helium. And she put a nebula that illustrates how heavy elements were made. And she she put the famous pillars of creation, and then on the front, she put all the rocky planets, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, and on the back of the kilt, she put all the gas giants. <laughs> I, don't want, I don't want to ask where Uranus is, but I have a hunch it's... Uh... You can guess. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ethan, I'm so happy to meet you. This was a lot of fun already. Um, but I do want to ask, uh, before you became a, a, a physicist and a scientist and an author, you were a young person. When did you become enamored of Star Trek? What was your on-ramp to Star Trek fandom? You know, that's a really, that's a really good question. You know, for me, I was, I was born in 1978. TNG came out in 87. Um, and so I had watched like one episode in the first season and I didn't really get into it. And I had watched an episode in the second season and I didn't get into it. Um, but it was really around season three or so when I was when I was maybe eleven years old, uh, I started I started watching it and and I was like, oh, this is really good. This is really interesting. I think I think it was the. Uh, the real big cliffhanger at the end of that season where Picard gets taken by the Borg and you have that whole plot line that I was like, wow, this is, this is compelling. Not only because it's like, it's set in space and there's this science fiction and there's this adventure and this suspense, but it's really bringing up this big question of what 
how, what's the limit to what you can actually do to a human and still have there be a human in there? Yeah, yeah. Like, at what point do you become more machine than man? What point do you lose your humanity? And, and as, as the timeline continued, as the stories continued being told, I started to feel that this was, this was a great way to explore what it means to be human. What are the limits of, you know, of your ethical questions. And then, you know, of course I went back and rewatched. And so I got to see the, the measure of a man episode. Well, yeah, just, um, and I got to see, I got to see all the, like, Oh, all the things that develop later on with deep space nine. I, I know it's not the most iconic moment of the series, but I remember when, when they had the uh, whole plot line on deep space nine, where they had changelings on earth yeah. and, and there was a witch hunt and a conspiracy and they wanted to test the blood of every person on earth. And captain Cisco goes to his dad and tries to get his dad's blood. And, and I'm thinking about like the rights of the individuals and freedom and trading it for security and and at the end, like he he just goes for it and he forcibly takes his dad's blood and and it doesn't accomplish anything and he's yeah. just betrayed his principles and he's betrayed his dad and and he didn't solve anything. And I said, you know, this is these are the kinds of questions that we should be asking, and maybe we are valuing the wrong things by by looking to security above all else. And this is even before 9-11 oh, happened. Yeah, yeah. So I, I think Star Trek has always been prescient and most important, most at its best when it when it interweaves these these scientific stories and these science fiction stories with with questions about what it means to be alive, what it means to be a good human being. Yeah, um, that's just the most fascinating stuff well, to me. You, you touched upon some really interesting things, particularly you know when how much when you were talking about uh, Picard becoming part of the Borg and losing his humanity, and then the reverse of that measure of a man when Data is a machine, but he is so close to being human that at what point do you say, what's the difference? And this is something that, um, I don't know if you watch Westworld, but that's what Westworld is all about. And this is something that comes up a lot on this show. We had um, Annalee Newitz, who uh, the author and... Uh, I know her from IO9. Yeah, of course. I would imagine that you two are best buds because you have a very <laughs> similar thing going on. And this is something that her new book is about and something that she is uh, grapples with, which is uh, you know cyborg rights. Like, at some point, when is it not okay to build a machine and treat it, you know, as they do on Westworld, uh, you know, a sex robot or just a violent, you know, thing to shoot and kill for no reason to torment? Um, it seems like, you know, I can beat the hell out of my toaster because who cares? It's a machine. At what point will it not be okay to do that? And this sounds like something you thought about a lot, too. Oh, yeah. I mean, this was one of the whole big ethical questions of the Battlestar Galactica universe, too. Yeah. Um, I mean, these are... And, and I, do, I do enjoy Westworld. That was, yeah. a, that was a wonderful first season that they had. Um, I, I think it is, it is important to ask that. And I think one of the great things you get to explore in... Uh, that I got to explore in Treknology was learning about how far we can actually augment human intelligence and also learning about the limits of how far we've come with artificial intelligence. It's, it's a question that we don't have to confront just yet, but it is something that I think is going to be on the horizon where when you have something that is, is intelligent, where it can make its own decisions, where it can do things beyond what it was programmed to do, that you have to start asking questions 
is it alive? Is it conscious? Do I, do I have to stop calling it it? Yeah, yeah. And do I have to start calling it the way I would call a living creature? Yeah. I mean, this is what Annalise's argument is. Like, we think of human beings as uh, special because, um, but how different are the reactions in our mind? You no, know, we, we get some sort of input and we respond to it in ways that we don't even are conscious of. That is what eventually these cyborgs will do. I mean, they're, they're conditioned and they react and it's not right to torment us, then therefore eventually it will not be right to torment a, a cyborg. Yeah, and I think that uh, when, you know, people like to refer to Asimov's law of robotics, yeah. which is that, you know, a, a, a robot cannot harm a human, that that's, that's the law. I don't think that's a law. I think <laughs> there that, are laws in, I, that we don't pay attention I, I to all the that, time. I think that that's just a, a wishful law, you know, like that he wrote that and he was like, yeah, this would be a good idea. Um, but I imagine that at some point, r robots, cyborgs, you know, artificial organisms, whatever you want to call them, will, I, I don't know that value is the right word, but will start to consider their own self-preservation as part of an algorithm. Mm. And I think when that happens, then, then you, you do have to start quantifying this question that how much is a robot's life worth relative to a human life or a dog's life or a, another living creature's life. And, you know, as, as human beings, we really don't like to think in those terms. We really don't like to think of, of putting a quantified value on someone's life. But, but if you're a machine, I think, I, I think first off as humans that although we, we, we think it's unethical to do that. We do at some level have to do that. When you ask yourself questions like, oh, here's my loved one in a coma. Do I keep them alive or do I pull the yeah. plug? How much of them is left? How much of, how much of their life is left? Um, how much does it cost? If it's worth a trillion dollars to keep them alive, we're not going to keep them yeah, alive. The, the, these these um, questions are asked. It's, it's, it's heavy stuff. And um, yeah, not exactly what's in technology, though, this sort of thing. Although, to a degree, some of the, certainly the uh, Android uh, uh, stuff is in there because what's, what's interesting about this book particularly is it's almost like a, a switcheroo. Every time you introduce a new piece of technology that's in the Star Trek world, there's the, guess what, some of this already exists, whether you realize it or not. Um, and I was stunned at how many of uh, the things that I think of from the far off future you put in your book not only are like uh, on the horizon, have already existed. For example, hyposprays existed before Star Trek even was around, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the story of the hypospray goes way back to uh, the invention of the grease gun that, that you, you know, you'd, you'd shoot things with a grease gun and it's this high-pressured sp spray and the first times it would happen, of course, uh, they would call it you got an accidental jet injection where like, you know, like whatever was in the grease gun got shot into a person and it went under their skin and they, they now had this in their body. Um, and it wasn't long before people realized like, oh, like we could use this to administer medicines purposefully. Um, and so in the 60s and 70s in the United States and all across the world, 
people would engage in mass vaccination campaigns because you could do this really, really rapidly with a jet injector yeah. that you could just say, oh, we're going to send this high-powered spray of medicine, we're going to get it into your bloodstream, and boom, next person, boom, next person. And with no needles, you think, I'm greatly reducing, reducing my risk of disease transmission. It turns out the drawback to using that, the reason that we use needles is because we haven't yet figured out the solution to the problem of when I jet inject something into you, how do I keep a little bit of blood from splashing back? How do I keep a little bit of when I break your skin and puncture through, how do I keep your own bodily fluids from contaminating the nozzle? Right. And so they have some solutions, like they can have a disposable nozzle, uh, but then you have to take time to replace it, and that's the same as using a different needle. The purpose, um, yeah. So there is... There is that barrier to it, but people are working on that problem. And one of the great things I found in, in researching for this book is there's a team at MIT that just in the last two or three years has made a really big breakthrough on that front. And so that dream of Star Trek, of having needleless injections, um, is really close to being on the horizon. And, and they can do it from everything from a baby's skin to uh, a grizzled old adult skin <laughs> through their clothing. Oh wow! So it's just the force of the of the power. It's just it's the, just the, the force yeah. of the spray that yeah. you can have a a gas pulse which will break the skin, followed by the liquid pulse that administers Amazing. the the medicine. So that, I mean, that's one of the uh, smaller parts of of technology on Star Trek. That's not not the bigger stuff like the transporter or the warp driver. One another one like that that you talk about in your book is synthahol. Is, yeah. is not that undoable. Like, we could have synthahol on the market tomorrow if the FDA would allow it. Is that basically the idea? Uh, if the FDA would allow it. So here's the whole thing. The idea of synthahol is, wouldn't it be great if you could have all the positive effects of drinking without any of the negative effects? That you could feel the euphoria, the increased confidence, the... Um, the loss of inhibitions that you could you could basically have all the good things about being drunk where you're having a good time and feeling good, but you haven't lost your equilibrium. You don't get nauseous. You don't get dehydrated. You don't act like a, can I say, let's just say jerk. Yes. You don't act <laughs> like a jerk. Um, you know, that would, be, that would be great if you had none of the ill effects. And Gene Roddenberry went a step further when he described Synthahol and said, the other important thing is all of your inebriated effects, if there's an emergency, you need to be able to just do something and shake it off. So you could be, when, when you know, you're, you're in 10 forward and you're real tipsy on your Synthahol and you're having a good time and you're the life of the party and the red alert signal goes off and you're needed at your post, that... His envision, his his way of looking at it was, it's the adrenaline. The adrenaline in your body will cancel out the synthahol, and it will it will denature it, and you'll be a hundred percent and good to go. Yeah. Now, in real life, it's not going to be adrenaline that does that trick. But on one hand, we are working hard on and have some good examples of medicines that are very promising that will give you the positive effects of inebriation without giving you the negative ones. There's a whole slew of medicines called the benzodiaphorazines, and I'm sure I didn't pronounce that right. Sounds good to me. Yeah, um, where this is, these are medicines like clonopin and, uh, and Valium, and, they, and what they do is um, normally you have these receptors in your body for a specific, uh, for a specific type of protein called GABA. 
that GABA, which is what you produce when you drink alcohol, uh, will bind to all of these receptors and produce all of the positive and negative effects of being drunk. What they have is they have medicines that are partial to GABA. They will, they will be activated by some of the receptors, but not by all of them. So you can get the feeling of euphoria without getting the dehydration. So you can get the increased confidence without getting the loss of equilibrium and the nausea. And, and these are extremely promising. There is, for that second part, um, promising medicines that you can take just where you pop a pill or drink a liquid. Um, where it can cancel out those effects pretty rapidly. Those medicines, though, do have side effects. Mm. Um, and so I think it's really only a question of pharmacological engineering before we hit on that right combination. And if the taste and the feeling is no different than alcohol, except it doesn't have those bad effects, I can't imagine that very many people would want to stick with alcohol right. when synthahol becomes available. And I do. I, I firmly believe that with the advances we're making and with the extraordinary market that would be there for it, I mean, who wouldn't like to experience that those good feelings without the addictive effects, without any of the drawbacks? Like, that's... That's one of the holy grails of, you know, of humanity is, man, wouldn't it be great to do this without having to suffer the effects having of Having to pay for alcohol. it the next day, yeah. It's, fa it's a fascinating thing because I think the only people who would say no to that would be like, look, you know, in ancient times, you know, the ancient Egyptians drank mead. They, you know, they, it's like it's a natural way to do it. If you're monkeying around in a laboratory, it just doesn't feel right. You and know? that actually came up in the TNG episode Relics where Scotty right. You're right. is at the bar and he, he comes back, right? Because James Dewan makes an appearance there. Yeah. And, uh, and he shows up and he's like, he, he actually gets to do a spit take on TNG because he, he drinks the synthahol and <laughs> right? Because he's like, this is crap. And he, he goes to Captain Picard and he's like, I can't, I'm a man out of time and I can't stand this future with synthetic scotch and synthetic commanders, you know, referring to data. And he... And he, he, he can't handle it. And Picard just, you know, does the one thing that you can do to pacify Scotty, which is he gives him some alcohol. <laughs> <laughs> so, so those are kind of the, the, the kind of smaller uh, things uh, and, and from Star Trek technology. But your book does start off, it starts with a bang, if you'll forgive the pun, uh, with the biggest and most important bit of future tech in all of Star Trek, the thing that keeps it going, the engine the concept of warp speed, warp drive, because if you can't get to bold new world, to brave new worlds, you're not going to boldly go. And this is, has been something that physicists have been talking about for a long time. How are we ever going to create faster than light travel? And um, your book talks about this because it's not an easy fix, but there are some possibilities out there. I think it's really important when you when you look at the technologies in Star Trek from a scientific point of view, there were really three separate things that you have to look at all at once. One is, what are the technologies in Star Trek trying to accomplish? And obviously, warp drive is the thing that allows you to have a trek to the stars. If you don't have warp drive, you're not really leaving the solar system on human lifespan times. You're, you're, you're talking multi-generational journeys, or at least multi-year journeys to get there. And, and that's rough. But what warp drive... The second thing you want to look at is... How does Star Trek envision this works in-universe? It's important to be aware of this. 
And it's interesting to sort of note that that's evolved over time. Oh, yeah. That yeah. as we've learned more um, about physics, uh, we don't have the same explanations that were canon in the original series. We, we've sort of changed that. And I think that's important to recognize is that Star Trek tells you what we need to accomplish. Star Trek makes a guess at how we're going to accomplish it, but it's not necessarily bound to that. So I think the next thing to look at is what does the physics actually say? Well, Einstein has this theory of general relativity that talks about the fabric of space is not like a three-dimensional grid where this is space and you move through it and that's the way it works. That space can actually be deformed by the presence of matter and energy. That you can have disconnected patches in it. That's the idea of wormholes that comes up in Deep Space Nine. Or what you can do is you can manipulate the fabric of space-time to, for instance, shorten it in front of you while expanding it behind you. There was a solution to general relativity, a mathematical solution, uh, by a physicist named Miguel Alcubierre that was put forth in 1994, where basically he took the concept of warp drive and said, I want to reverse engineer a solution to this in general relativity. What will it take to do it? And that's exactly the way he was able to do it, is he said, well, if you have a region of space where the space in front of you is compressed, uh, you'd have to expand the space behind you to compensate for that. But then as you travel forward through the compressed space, you, you're limited by the speed of light that you can't go faster than the speed of light through the space. But if the space is compressed and you're going slower than the speed of light, then effectively it can be many times the speed of light. Yeah. So that's how it's mathematically possible. The question is then, okay, so there's a mathematical solution. What do you need in order to make this a physically viable solution? And that's where we're stuck for right, right now. And, <laughs> and we know what the answer is. We know we need some form of negative mass or some form of negative energy. And if we had that and can manipulate it and could utilize it properly, we could, with the proper engineering, create warp drive. Is such a thing, though, negative mass, negative energy, is that possible in this physical universe? And that's where we're stuck. That's right. what we don't know. I think uh, we talked about this a little bit once before with, um, um, oh, the, uh, the author of The Physics of Star Trek. We were just talking about Oh, the him. author, uh, Lawrence Krauss. Yeah, with Dr. Lawrence Krauss was a guest on this podcast a, f a few months ago, and uh, he was a little bit of a, of a Debbie Downer. He seemed to think that, all these things are theoretically possible, but the amount of power that you would need uh, for the you would need access to power of you know fifteen suns. You know it would it would not there simply would not be enough propulsion to make this all happen. That was that was his thinking anyhow. But you know, hope hopefully he's incorrect. I don't know. Well, I mean, people once you discover something is physically possible. I like to say that the rest is just engineering. The rest is just details. And, and, and I'm a theoretical astrophysicist, and so is Lawrence. Yeah. Um, and uh, we've, we've actually overlapped in the university scene a few times, so we, we know each other a little bit. Um, I, I'm very well aware that, you know, what a theorist conceives of as the first way to do something or the, the only way to do something is normally only a first step. Once we realize that something is physically possible, there are people a lot cleverer than we are at those kinds of problems right. who can really increase the efficiency. I like that answer. That's a good one. Uh, we have a question up front. Hi. Um, 
I tried to research it, but I can't. Um, but you, we mentioned the, um, the back vaccines um, being done through hyperspray. Yeah. I have this memory in 1976, we had the swine flu vaccine. Mm -hmm. I have this memory of us being lined up in the auditorium and being shot with some kind of funky looking space gun. Wasn't <laughs> that, I don't remember it being a needle. Uh, would it be okay with you, Jordan, if yeah. I opened up my book and read a little bit from the chapter on hyposprays? Absolutely. We have a few <laughs> minutes. Yeah. And while you're looking for the page, I will mention that this book is, you know, it's got a lot of heavy science in there, but it's also very, very user-friendly. Lots of great photos, diagrams, some of them direct from the Star Trek archives and some of them unique. Uh, if you have trouble envisioning a waveform, uh, there are really cool graphics, and this book will be available in October of this year, 2017. Uh, have you found the page? Yeah, I have. So here's the thing is, um, while it may seem unique and innovative, the hyperspray is one technology envisioned by Star Trek that actually existed prior to the show's premiere. Known as a jet injector, it's powered by a high-pressure system of air or gas that allows a liquid dose to be administered in a stream through the skin and into the patient. Uh, thanks to an advance made by Aaron Ismock, jet injectors not only became portable, but were modified so that they could administer liquid just barely beneath the skin. Perfect for, example, a smallpox vaccination. In 1967, just one year after Star Trek's debuted, the World Health Organization called for a massive vaccination campaign to rid the world of smallpox. Ismok's device was capable of rapidly vaccinating up to 1,000 people per hour and was instrumental in vaccinating huge swaths of the African continent. Smallpox was officially announced to be eradicated in 1980. And then it helped set a world immunization record. In 1976, <laughs> when 50 million Americans were vaccinated against the swine flu in only 10 weeks. Hey, right. that was you. So, that was you. <laughs> you are one of 50 million there in the go. book on that, page 200. Yeah, that didn't get nerve damage from it. So they did actually use it, but... They did use it. Um, the reason they stopped using it is because of that contamination risk. And so, you know, it, it's like everything. For most people, there is no contamination and you're fine. But let's say the risk is one in 10,000 or one in 100,000. If you vaccinate 50 million people, right. uh, you have a large number of people who may have been contaminated. And we know that there are many blood transmitted diseases that if one person has it and they get a jet injection and that gets on the jet injector and then that same hour you inject a thousand other people, there is the potential for disease transmission. And so we're, we're a little more cautious with medicine today than we were 40 years ago, which, which is good, but is also less efficient. And so I think that's the problem that people want to solve is how can you keep that high level of efficiency that a jet injector or a hypospray gives you and eliminate or greatly reduce that risk of contamination. Okay. 
I was so, just, just making sure that I didn't make stuff in my mind. <laughs> no, that really happened. 1976, yeah, 50 was, million Americans you, you, were vaccinated. I was eight years old. That's why I'm like, okay, did I imagine No, you didn't, you didn't fall asleep watching Dr. McCoy and, and <laughs> Dream It. So the hypospray is just one of the many bits of technology that are in this book. You got the tricorder. You got the, the tractor beam. You know, we, we, it really drills deep. So it's a lot of fun for folks that maybe want to check it out. We have one minute to go before we have to let the next panel on. So in one minute, I got to ask you, theoretical physicist Ethan Siegel, what the hell is M-theory? Is M-theory really a thing? Yeah, I mean, M-theory is an extension of string theory. But it um, just sounds so fake, M-theory. It's like they picked it at a random. Why M? Well, okay, um, so you've heard of string theory, right? Yes. So our current theory of physics is, and i got to do this in one minute, right? About 35 seconds now? Yeah. Okay, so... We think everything is made up of particles, and they act like waves, but at their core, they're particles. String theory says, what if they're not really particles? What if they're not point-like objects, but one-dimensional objects? So you move it through space, move a point through one dimension, you get a string. M theory goes further, says imagine you have a string, and you move that through a different dimension. You get a membrane, and that's what the M stands for. Is it's, right. a, it's a higher dimensional extension of things that come about when you get multiply connected strings in string theory. You like M theory? Does it work for you? Uh, I'm open to the possibility that it may be correct, but when it comes to physics, I'm really more of a show me and test it, and then we'll talk. <laughs> right now, I would say it's speculative and possible, and that's as generous as I can be. He's being very diplomatic. M-theory officially debunked here at Star Trek <laughs> Las Vegas 2017. A big round of applause for Ethan Siegel, whose book is going to be available in October of 2017. This is one of the most fun uh, Star Trek books that's been published in a long time. You really got to check it out. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. I got to say, I love the rules of acquisition in the shape of... Does everyone notice his shirt? Is, uh, is a Ferengi with the rules of acquisition on there. Uh, for those of you who don't know the contradictory and wonderful world of rules of acquisition, my two favorite ones are uh, peace is good for business, which is immediately followed by war is good for business. <laughs> <laughs> They're both true. They're both true. So stick around. In a moment, we're going to have a fantastic photo op with some of our cosplayers. The ladies of Star Trek are, are backstage. So we're going to stay put, and we're going to bring them all out here.